Jesus, uh, you are real. We know that you, you live up in heaven and you sent your Holy Spirit to live in our hearts. But, uh, Lord, when we use our, our eyes and our ears and our, our noses and our touch to, to determine what's real, God, it's, it's this world that's around us. And God, I pray right now in the spiritual realm, Lord, that the spiritual realities of life would be made real to us. God, that all the theology and all the word of God and all the praying and all the good works and faith, Lord, that all of it would become incredibly real to us. Something that that is more real than the very ground and the very chairs that we sit in, the air that we breathe, Lord God. We need spiritual reality to flood into our lives. Because, God, the Spirit lasts forever. This world is going to burn. Our bodies are going to grow old and die and decay. But, God, our spirits will live forever and and that doesn't just start at a, at a distant time in the future. That's now. And the reality is, Lord, we need to, to know that and experience it. So, God, we, we can't do that on our own. Lord, we humbly ask you to be our teacher, to be our guide, and to be the light into our heart and into our life. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, we've come to the end of the theological half of Ephesians. The first half of Ephesians is about theology and learning how to just sit and know God and know what he's done for you. And so there's, that's that first half. And then there's the second half that begins in chapter 4, which we'll get to next week. And it starts, I, I, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. So that starts the practical section. The theological section is first. God's, Paul just wants you to know where you stand, what, what's been done, what's the reality. And, and then there's this practical section that's going to teach us how to walk, what to actually do with all this stuff. But what we have to look at today is so awesome. It's the central prayer of the book of Ephesians. It's the middle of the book, and it's, it's the heart of the message, and it's, you know, Paul doesn't just want to inform us about a bunch of information, a bunch of stuff, and, and then tell us what we should do. No, he asks the Lord to make it come alive in our hearts. So he gives us the information, and then this section that we're looking at today is his prayer that all of that information comes alive so that the practical can happen. Do I want you to be a godly Christian whose life demonstrates the, 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 the walk with the Lord? Of course I do. But do I want you to fake it by your efforts, by trying? No. It can't be fake. I don't want it to be fake. God doesn't want it to be fake. He wants it to be real. And how does it get real? Well, Paul, he, he prays for it to be real. He binds the theological and the practical together by this prayer that we're going to look at today. This is where it all gets real. This is where it changes from Paul just informing us about information to describing the effects of believing that information. And as Paul is trying to teach everyone about all this information, he realizes that the information itself is not what we need. It needs to become real. You know, a soldier, when he's in battle and the bullets are whizzing by and the stress is rising to the highest levels in their life, they'll be glad for all the information that they were taught in boot camp. Even though it was painful and annoying and brutal hearing that guy yell at them and get that information into them in whatever way the army does it, you know, they're going to be thankful that the army went through the time and the effort to train them and what they would need at that time. And we are in the same way. When life gets crazy, we need everything we've learned to become real. You know, that's why it's important to get to church. It is. It's important to go to church. It's not required, but it's there to prepare you for the attacks and the bullets and the wars and the bombs and the battles that are coming in your life. Because they are coming. 
whether you want them to or not, or whether you believe they are or not. And it's these times of learning and, and learning the theology and learning what the Lord is doing that really grow us. So let's see how it all gets real. Verse 14 of chapter 3. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So the first way that it gets real is shown by Paul. He doesn't tell us, he shows us, which is a good teacher. It's his absolute humility before God. He says he bows his knees and he begs the Father. Begging. That's a word that we use for dogs or very poor people or handicapped people in other countries. We, we ascribe the word begging to a not very good place in your life. And, and here Paul, he throws himself right there and he says, I beg God, I bow on my knees. And he's praying, it says, for the whole family, the whole family of God. And he says, uh, both they're in heaven and on earth, meaning every believer that was ever going to live or die. And so what he's doing here is he's dedicating the church exactly how Solomon did in the Old Testament. Do you remember Solomon got to build the temple of God? And David was, was really wanted to build it, Solomon's dad, and David was told by God that, David, you've, you've been a man of war, you've killed a lot of people with your hands, and, and I don't want you to be the one that builds my temple, but your son Solomon can build it. And so David got everything prepared, and then Solomon came and he built it. And then in the day that Solomon finished building it, he dedicated this temple to the Lord. And it says he bowed on his knees. He bowed on his knees and he prayed that God would, would be there for his people. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. And, and it's interesting because Paul says he's praying for every believer that's going to live and die. And he, he links all the church together as a family and it's, that's actually a really deep concept to explore. Um, in Hebrews, they're called the great cloud of witnesses. You know, all the, the church that's in heaven. In fact, Spurgeon, you guys love Spurgeon, right? Spurgeon taught this great message where he took this verse and he, he went a whole like hour. His sermons were like two hours long. So you guys had it good. I don't want to hear no guff. <laughs> but he taught this whole beautiful message on on how the church here, us alive, are, are, this, are united together with the church that's in heaven. And they're like this great cloud of witnesses. It's really beautiful and something you should go look at in your own time. But, you know, I used to love it when my family would come and watch my football games. Did that ever happen to you? Did your family ever come watch your sports or see your piano recital or, I don't know, anything? It was so encouraging, and I felt their love and support. And I, I do the same for my boys now. You know, I don't just come to their games. I'm actually the coach of their team right now. Um, half of them. The other half I'll, I'll have to coach next time. But um, they, they love it, and I'm there, and I can give them a big hug. And I remember Corbin scored this touchdown this year that was just crazy. He was, he was going this way, and then he went that way, and all around, all the guys on the team, and it was, it was awesome, and I think I made a total fool of myself jumping up and down and screaming, and my wife and I love to scream at the football games. It's really awesome. But, you know, I, I don't, you know, that's how the church up in heaven is watching us now, and they aren't yelling, quit dropping the ball. You know, we see this other team in our league, and their coach is pretty tough on them. He, he kind of gets upset with them, and I, I kind of get discouraged for the kids because they're like, oh. I did drop the ball, and he's like, quit dropping the ball, and it's, it's a bummer, you know? And, uh, you know, but the, the church, I believe, up in heaven is excited about what God is doing here and what God is doing in your life and in your heart. They've been there. They know the difficulty of living in the flesh, but they also know the freedom and glory that's coming. It's going to be amazing. So Paul, you know, he's passionate, but why is he so passionate, or what? Is Paul so passionate about that he's willing to beg God on his knees? Look at verse 16. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Let me rephrase that in my own words. Is that he would give you all the strength you need in your soul and heart 
through being filled with the Spirit because He has those resources. It's a, it's a grant or a gift according to the riches of His glory. Paul's not asking that we do enough good things to earn this strength because if we did, that would be according to our glory. You know, Training is this big thing in the, in the world of sports and athletics. You, you train your muscles to get stronger and stronger and stronger. And the church has sometimes taken that idea and brought it into the Christian life, and that's not the way it works with Jesus. Maybe with faith. Maybe you can grow a little bit in, str- in, in strength of faith and being able to take bigger steps of faith and bigger steps of faith, but we translate it into our works, and we think, well, I just need to try just a little bit harder. And if I, if I get up tomorrow morning a little bit earlier, two minutes, I'll set my alarm two minutes earlier, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll finally make it with God. I'll finally start getting strong enough to please Him or to, to have victory over this sin. And it's a deception. And it doesn't go according to God's heart. And Paul, he was praying here according to God's heart. And he prays that we would be strengthened in the inner man according to his glory. Because he gets all the glory when someone says, God, I need you so much and I can't do this. And God says, I know. And here's the strength given to you freely to do his will. That gives him glory. It's the way he works. But Paul, he prays for us that God would do this work inside of us. And it's very important to pray the right right way. You know, this prayer that Paul's playing is right. This prayer is according to the way God works. He gives grace. If we pray, God, I've tried so hard. Why don't you help me? Haven't you seen how hard I've tried? You see, and then we end it in Jesus' name, amen. And we, we totally miss the fact that we did not pray in Jesus' name. We did not pray according to his will. We prayed in a way that would give us glory. God, I'm trying hard, so I deserve your grace. I put, I put so much into this, God, so meet me halfway. And God's like, no, then you get half the glory. And I will not share my glory with any man. And so... This is what Paul is doing. He's praying in the name of Jesus. And he asks God to give us strength on the inside. And this gift, give, relates to gifts, and that relates to grace. It's the language of grace. Whenever you see give in the Bible, it's related to grace. Whenever you see earn, it's related to the law and, and sin and trying to work your way for God, which doesn't work. Oh, and we need it. Because no amount of human strength can overcome sin. No amount of human strength can overcome our selfish desires that dwell in our hearts. And no amount of efforts can bring freedom or lift this burden, you know, this burden like sin. It's like a mountain on our back. If you've ever read the story of the Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, it's a phenomenal story and it really changed the whole course of church history when it was written. It was written several hundred years ago. And it's the story of this guy named Christian on his way to the heavenly city. And he had this huge backpack when he started. When he heard about the Lord, he had this huge backpack. And it was like the seriously the size of a mountain on his back. And he just struggled and struggled and struggled on his journey. And that's how it feels. And it's an allegory for our lives. But God's strength is so great that he can easily lift up that backpack off our shoulders. And the way he does it is by the Holy Spirit. And what is the Holy Spirit? Obviously, it's God himself. And how strong is God? That's a good question. When it says, Paul prays that he wants us to be strengthened with might, God, Paul means with the might of God. Like Gideon, you remember Gideon back in the, in the Old Testament? 
God went around calling him a mighty man of God all the time. He'd say, Gideon, mighty man of God. And, and Gideon's like, I think you have the wrong guy. Because I am not a mighty man of God. I, I'm a lowly, what, I think he was a shepherd or something. And, and God kept saying, Gideon, mighty man of God. And, but that's how God works. He gives us strength. He gives strength, it says, to the humble. So Paul is demonstrating this as he's teaching us about it. He humbles himself, himself receiving God's strength by, for free. And then he's saying, God, would you do this in the lives of the church as well? So it's all about this strength. It's all about doing awesome things for God through God's help, through the Holy Spirit. You know, and people will look at your life and they'll say, that's pretty amazing that I know, I used to know that guy. I used to know the kind of things he used to do. And, and it's truly remarkable that, that he's so different. I see this strength in his life. Well, Paul is going to explain now how it all gets real. How this strength becomes real in your life. Have you ever, have you ever thought, this is a little fake? Or I'm a little fake. I, I know the church is important. I know that the Bible is important. But I read the Bible and it just seems empty. It just seems like I didn't experience what God wanted me to experience. Or I, I think I trust God, but I don't really know. Am I just faking it? Well, what we're going to find out now is how you can go from that place to being supremely confident in what God has for you, in, in where you stand with God, in what God has given you. L- look at verse 17. It says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, and we'll, we'll stop right there. Jesus living in your heart is the real deal. Jesus living in your heart is all you need and all we have to offer to the world. You know, what kind of house is good for God? Well, back in Solomon's day, he was building that temple as a house for God. But the temple in Jerusalem wasn't good enough for him. It was that that temple that Solomon built. Look at what Acts chapter 47 says. I'll, I'll read it to you. In Acts chapter Chapter 7, verse 47, not chapter 47. You're like, you're a heretic, but no. Chapter 7, verse 47, he says, But Solomon built him a house, a house for God, a place for God to dwell. But verse 48 says, However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As my prophet says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? So God says we couldn't build him a house that he's going to... So he's going to build himself a place to live, a house for himself to live in, and and that's our hearts. He didn't want a, a stone temple. He wanted a heart of flesh to live in. And Jesus is living in your heart. Obviously, he's not in his human body. That's why he said it would be better if he went away to the disciples. He said, it's better if I go away, because then I can send to you the Holy Spirit, which is himself. The Holy Spirit could come and dwell and live inside us, but the Holy Spirit could never dwell with men before Jesus did his work of paying for our sins on the cross, because we were sinful. We were full of unrighteousness. But now he can. Jesus said concerning his spirit, I will come to you. I will not leave you orphans. And so it's amazing and it's by faith that when a person believes in what Jesus did on the cross, he's forgiven and the spirit is free to come in and make his home and his dwelling with him. And it's available to anyone who asks. If you ask and believe, then he comes. That's how it works. But he doesn't come to those who work. He doesn't come to those who try harder. 
We have to get this in our minds. We have to get past this humanistic way of thinking, this prideful way of thinking that we could somehow earn God's Holy Spirit. Or we could somehow clean up the rooms of our heart enough to make it a nice place for Jesus to dwell. That's not how it works. Our hearts need to be washed, but they need to be washed in a a bath of blood. The blood of Jesus Christ entering into our hearts by faith. That's what makes him clean. So, he does come to everyone who asks and believes, and then it says, as Jesus dwells in your heart, he starts what I like to think of as he starts like growing like a tree. His roots start digging down in your heart and taking a, a hold in there. Talk about getting a hold of someone's heart. We, we use that phrase, well, you really got a hold of his heart. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He gets a hold. How, how does a tree grow? Well, you've got to water it. And just so happens that the Lord's given us the water of his word And as we spend time in the Word, Jesus' tree in our heart grips into us. And I don't know how it happens. I don't understand. To me, there should just be like Boy Scouts where you do something and then you get a badge and then you do something and then you get another badge and then you're a Weeblow and then you do something else and then you're a Scout and all these different steps and levels and that's not the way that God works. God just grows like a tree as we spend time with him, as we abide in his word. How does he take root in our hearts and become the grounding or the foundation for our lives? It's his love. What is the thing that causes those roots to go deep in our hearts? It's his love. The love of Jesus for you is what it's all about. The love of Jesus for you is what makes everything get real. And this is where we get to the point of our message today. And I'll start with describing Thomas Aquinas, this guy from church history. He stated that although both Christ and God the Father had the power to restrain those who killed Christ on Calvary, neither did due to the perfection of the love of Christ. Aquinas also taught that given that perfect love casts out fear, Jesus had no fear when he was crucified, for his love was all perfect. It is this perfect love that will root in your heart. It will ground your life, your heart. It will change you and make you holy. It's his love that does this. It's his love that saves us. It's his love that changes us. It's his love that is the power and the motivating force for us. Now, Paul begs God. This is the center of this book. This is the one phrase. He begs God to reveal this love to us that you, verse 18, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ with which passes knowledge, and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Spurgeon said, In this measurement may you and I be skilled. If we know nothing of mathematics, may we be well-tutored scholars in spiritual geometry, that we may be able to comprehend the breadths and lengths of Jesus' precious love. To a lot of people, Jesus and his love is just a, a, a crazy story, a theory, an idea, a belief, a fictional story designed to make us try harder and be good people. But to Paul, and I pray to us, the love of Jesus is a measurable thing. It's to be thought about and contemplated and measured in every way imaginable, up, down, left, and right. And if we did nothing but lose ourselves in the love of Jesus all day long, we would be filled with more than we could imagine. Do you believe that? If you just contemplated his love, you would be just fine. You know, he says it's like Jesus 
And Paul pulls you close to his face and says, Jesus loves you. And then he grabs your face and holds it even closer, you know, so you can see the passion and almost rage exploding in Paul's face. And he says, you need to know how much Jesus loves you if you want it to be real. If you want church to be real, you've got to know how much Jesus loves you. Maybe if we knew the love of Jesus like Paul did, we would sound more convincing when we said, Jesus loves you on the bus or in, to the people at work or whoever we talk to. But Paul says this love passes knowledge. That means that if all you ever learned your whole life was only about the love of Jesus, it would still be greater. Think of everything you've ever learned and put that in a bucket and the descriptions of Jesus' love would be a million times greater. We only use 2% of our brains throughout our lives, and that's generous. And if we used 100% on Jesus' love, it would still be greater. We would still have no idea how much he loves us. Yet, Paul boldly prays that we would comprehend and know it. How does this happen? I love when the Bible just purposely blows your mind. You know, you can't know it, but you need to know it. But it's impossible, but I'm praying for it, and it's going to be done. It's unbelievable. It's crazy how this happens. Because our brains are limited. Paul asks that God just bypasses our puny little minds and inputs the fullness of this knowledge into our hearts. Rooting it and grounding it there where no one can steal it away or confuse you out of believing it, it will be there forever. And we're given, it says, this knowledge of God's love in four dimensions. The height, the breadth, the length, the depth. It's like a 4D movie of his love being projected in our hearts. All the time. You know, yesterday I, I went and saw a 3D movie for like my first time. And it was crazy good. Like I was like, wow. You know, I, I've seen it at Disneyland with the bugs and stuff. And, and so those 3D movies, it's like, okay, that's cool. But this, I was like, whoa, that's cool. And, and but I, I was talking to someone just before service and, and they said Satan likes to keep our eyes, you know, get our eyes distracted. And I thought about this and I thought, you know what? Satan's trying to distract us with this whole world like it's a 3D movie. But God's love is in 4D and it's shown in our hearts. And I just found a cool little, little link there. Um, so these four dimensions work together to describe the fullness of his love. It's, it's to be a full description. It's like Paul saying, if you haven't seen this movie... You need to see this movie. I can tell you about it, but it's not the same. You need to experience it yourself. And some of you, I believe, haven't seen this movie yet of God's love. Or maybe you, you got a little distracted while you were watching it by the company around you or the good smell of the buttery popcorn. And you think, everyone is always talking about the love of Jesus but I don't get it. I'm not sure if this even applies to me. I'm not what I should be. I'm not what I could be. And I'm telling you today, you need to see this movie again with a fresh perspective. That means pray. Pray that God would show you and reveal to you how much he loves you. I can't do it justice by explaining it. If I had the best sermon in all history, or I was the most gifted poet or songwriter he would still never be able to come close to describing his love for you. You have to watch this movie in your own heart. I don't know how wide he searched for you. I have no idea how long or how far he went to bear with you and come after you. I will never understand the depth that he pulled you from. And I don't see the heights he is taking you to. Those are between you and him. This is between you and him. But it's Paul's praying that we get it. 
But when we pray and we ask God to show us his love, he will. Through the pages of scripture, you will be able to see time after time his love just demonstrated and described. And people can tell you, and your pastor can teach you stories, but it doesn't become real until you seek it out, until you ask God to show you. I can tell you Jesus loves you. But you need to read it for yourself and know that the Holy Spirit was speaking to you. And when he does, tears often flow. When you know that God is telling you, my child, I have loved you beyond anything you can comprehend. And you're reading in Scripture, and he says it in your heart. It bypasses your brain. You don't even understand it. You don't get it. And in your heart, you all of a sudden, you get it, and you believe then, Paul, then Paul's prayer has been answered. Your heart will explode with a well of water gushing out. The water of his love. And I want you guys to experience that today. I want you all to ask God for that today. Look with me at the Song of Solomon. It's after Psalms and Proverbs. Turn with me there. It's a small little book. It's this poem about love and relationships and intimacy. And it's an awesome picture of the love of the Shulamites with Solomon, her husband. And it's a big metaphor for the church in Jesus Christ. It's a description of a love story, this 4D love story that's unfolding in our hearts And look with me at chapter 8 of the Song of Solomon. This is the description of of what the Shulamites, this, this girl who represents the church, how she tries to describe the love of her husband. And I think you'll be really amazed when we look at this. Verse 6 of chapter 8. The Shulamite to her beloved. Set me as a seal upon your heart as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death. That means it it lasts and endures through death. You know, kind of like the Princess Bride teaches us. Death cannot stop true love. My East L.A. Princess Bride. Never mind. I love that movie. True love. (laughs) Anyway, Jealousy is as cruel as the grave. It means, you know, it, it demands our faithfulness and response just like death demands our bodies at the end of our life. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give all or for love, all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. So we see she, she describes her man's love in two ways. Number one, it's unquenchable. And number two, it's unpurchasable. It's unquenchable. It's an everlasting love, unending, not dependent on performance or lack of performance. It's described as a thing of fire, a most vehement flame. I love those words. And he says, she says, no waters can quench it, which is a very accurate description. And I'm going to go through some waters that try and fail to quench Jesus' love for you. The waters of shame and suffering sought to quench and drown it. But Jesus was not stopped on his way to, the, to love us completely on the cross. He endured pain and shame, and it did not quench his love. The waters of death sought to quench it. These waters fully covered Jesus, but his love overcame them. His love devastated the grave and made a show of their defeat when he rose from the grave. The waters of our unworthiness could not quench or drown love. Jesus clings to the unworthy and will not leave them. He touches the lepers and he speaks peace to the prostitutes. 
our unworthiness means nothing to him because he loves us. The waters of our long rejection sought to quench it. But he waits for us to turn to him. He waits so patiently. And I know there's a lot of amens when you think about how patient he's been with you. The waters of our daily inconsistency seem to quench it every day. But his love works with power inside us to create consistency where there was none before. His love is unquenchable, my friends. His love is all you need. And nothing you can do can stop it. Secondly, it's unpurchasable. It says, if a man were to give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. It would be despised. You can't give a gift to pursue him, to, to persuade him to love. You can't buy his love. You can't give all your wealth as a payment for having been loved. Because that's more like a relationship with a prostitute than with a God who is freely giving his love. You would be utterly despised if you tried to use your wealth or works as a bribe to tempt him not to love or no one can tempt him not to love you. No matter how, someone, how much someone hates you or how much someone has good reason to hate you because you really messed up, that doesn't affect God's love for you. Or as a substitute for love. Here, I, I can't love you, but take this money to make up for my lack of love. That doesn't work either. You know, it's unpurchasable, his love. And so many times we feel like we have to stop his love from being quenched or try to purchase his love. And it's not the case. He loves you right now where you're at. And it will never change or be lessened. He loves you. This uh, Shulamite's, this, this young lady's understanding of her husband's love was legit. Her man's love was real in her heart. She could never describe it with such clarity and conviction if it wasn't real. No one could ever change her mind or cause her to doubt it because she knew his love. She'd experienced it. It was tucked away and hidden deep inside her heart. She had watched the movie in her heart. You could say that it had grown roots there, his love. Especially when these challenges come. When the doctor says it's cancer or the door slams in your face. When the boss calls you in to fire you. When we're betrayed and despised and we're rejected and mistreated, the things that this world looks at and says, that's why you should not believe in the love of God, you come through it and say, these things are the reason why I know the love of God. Why I know that, it, because in my heart it gets deeper, it gets stronger, it gets more passionate and powerful. And so Paul says to the Romans, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? But he says, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Jesus, the love of Jesus, makes it real and gives you victory over all the bunk in this world. Everything that's coming against us. He said, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things in the present, or things to come, or height, or depth, or any other created thing, would be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate, even if I run away, because your love never fails. 
Our challenges don't separate us from his love. In fact, they provide opportunities to see that love flow out of our hearts to the world around us. So here's the question. Has the love of Jesus gripped your heart? To what extent has its roots gone down and wrapped around the deepest parts of your heart? Here's a quick test for you. This is for you to do in your own heart. Romans 5.2 This is through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of, of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Do you glory in tribulations? That is the clearest sign to someone watching you that you trust God. That you know the love of Jesus. That you have something that they are searching for. How do I, sh- how do I show? I can tell people God, Jesus loves you. But how do I show it? God, give me an opportunity to show your love to people. All right, here's cancer. Wait, 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 wait. That's not what I meant. I meant, bring me someone who just wants to hear about Jesus. Like, have someone come and ask me, does Jesus love me? And I can just say yes. And God's like, that doesn't work. I need to bring you trials. I need to bring you trials. I need you to suffer. But God, that's not comfortable. I know, but hell's not very comfortable for that person who's watching you. And I don't want them to go to hell. And so you are my servant. And I ask you to suffer. I ask you to go through tribulations. I ask you, do you want to be used? You tell me all the time, God, use me, God, use me, God, use me but you're not willing to glory in your tribulations. You're not willing to trust me. And I'm not standing up here telling you to just start glorying in your tribulations, to just make a decision. I'm saying, abide in his love. Learn of his love. Know his love. Let the roots dig down into your heart of his love. Thank him for his love every day. And then you will see your tribulations in a totally different light. You will see them as God sees them because perfect love casts out fear. You won't be afraid of anything. Some of you are so scared of trials and suffering and hurting. Because you've gone through things before and they've hurt and so you're gun shy now. It's like, you know, a scab or a bruise. You've been hurt and you don't want to hurt again. But when you know the love of Christ, you won't be afraid of anything. You'll be able to trust that God is always working and always doing what's best through you and he's using you. You will have this attitude that we see now in Ephesians 3.20. You will have this attitude. You will be able to say now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. When his love gets real in our hearts, we start to see the possibilities of what would happen if we would just let him work in and through us, if we would just embrace our trials in his love. Laying down every day our plan 
and seeking his. Crucifying our life expectations and dependence on our flesh in the hope, the sure guarantee that he will pour his power out in our lives. This guy hates me. My flesh wants to treat him poorly back and then run away. But now, your love is growing in my heart and I desire to stay and patiently love and minister to his needs. And then that guy gets saved. Then that guy comes to believe because he was testing me. He was checking to see You talk about the love of Jesus, but do you really believe it? Here, let me call you a jerk. Let me be a little bit mean to you. Because believe it or not, the world knows and understands that if you call yourself a Christian, then you should be loving beyond with whatever I do to you. Your beliefs, your actions shouldn't be determined by my actions towards you. I'm an unbeliever. I'm, an un- I'm not a Christian. How can I change what you're going to do? And that's where it gets real. It's when you let it change you. And that's how the church is supposed to work and has worked in every generation. The first church was the, you know... Right after, you know, about 70 A.D., there started this persecution in the church. And ten times there was this state-sponsored persecution in the church. And so you'd think, wow, what a big challenge for the church. How did they not just get wiped off the face of the earth? But you know what happened during those 200 years, 220 years? The church grew a thousand percent. It got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. They would kill one Christian. They'd feed one to the lions. And a thousand more would get saved. Because when you glorify God in your trials and tribulations, it's real. People will believe. People will say, that, that is what I want. And the love of Jesus is synonymous with grace. Do you have an impossible situation? Do you feel like you just can't do what the Lord is asking you to do because it's asking too much? Our text tells us there's nothing too hard for God. Just ask Him for His grace. Know that He will answer you and give you His grace and provide everything you need. Why would He do that? Because He loves you. He loves you. And many waters cannot quench that love. You can't purchase it with anything. It's just there. He loves you. Would you all stand with me? And we're going we're gonna to pray and I'm going to ask Rachel to come back up and lead us in another song. Jesus, we we come to you, God. We lift up our hearts to you. Lord, we want to be transformed by your love. God, there's there's no way that we can understand this with our brains, God, but Lord, we pray that you would make it real in our hearts. And maybe you're out there today and maybe you have been going along and going to church and it's all been this fake thing. And and you want to come today and you want to say, Jesus, I want to come back to you. I want to return to my first love. And I invite you to pray and return. Run back to him and he will meet you. He will run to you. And he'll pick you up and hug you and hold you because he loves you. And if you don't know the Lord and you've never believed in his love and believed that 
When he died on the cross, he did it because he loves you and to, as a substitute for your sin. And you've never declared, that's what I believe and that's the life that I want to follow. And I invite you to repent of your sin and to turn away from everything and, and follow the Lord. And just pray with me and say, Lord, I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. I believe that you've loved me before I knew anything about you. And I believe that you will forgive me if I ask. So Lord, I ask that you would forgive me. And Lord, I ask that you would come and live in my heart. And God, please make it like a tree that goes down deep, Lord. And help me to know the heights and the depth and the breadth and of all of your love. Lord, I believe. And for those who are returning back to the Lord, just, Lord, we pray that you would accept us back. We have every guarantee that you will. But Lord, we, we humble ourselves before you. Lord, sin deceives us. Sin destroys us. And Lord, we turn away from it now. We turn to your light and to your purity and to your love. And God, we ask that you would transform our hearts. Let our inconsistency, inconsistencies become a thing of the past as we keep our eyes focused and fixed on the heavenly prize, on you, Jesus Christ, and your face and how much you care about us and what you've done for us. So, Lord, take all of us, Lord, and, and unite us as your people. Help us to encourage each other in love and be filled with good works towards each other. Lord Jesus, we trust you, and I pray, Lord, that we would believe that you love us. In your name we pray. Amen.